welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But Elijah told her, Don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 13-16, through 16, New Living Translation one day a man from Baal Shalisha brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain and twenty loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. Elisha said, Give it to the people so they can eat. What? his servant exclaimed. Feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, Give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says, Everyone will eat, and there will even be some left over. And when they gave it to the people, there was plenty for all, and some left over, just as the Lord had promised. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42-44 through 44, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time librarian. He arranges the books on the bookshelves, though we're seriously considering relieving him of that duty. He tends to like to arrange the books by the color of their covers, not their subject, author, or title. And let's just say his sense of color is not always aesthetically pleasing. Anyway, today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to begin a new discussion about a subject that can be surprisingly controversial, though you'd think that it wouldn't be. Today, we want to start talking about the miracles in the Bible. R.D., would you like to give us a brief introduction about why you wanted to discuss miracles? Absolutely. As you mentioned, the subject of miracles in the Bible can be controversial, even though you probably would think that it wouldn't be. I mean, most Christians certainly believe in miracles, and probably at one time or another, most of us, most Christians, have hoped to be the recipient of a miracle of one type or another, either a miracle pertaining to finances or healing or something else. And that's going to be one of the points that we're going to be covering during this series, whether authentic biblical miracles still occur today. That can be one area of controversy when it comes to the overall subject of miracles. 
But a second point of controversy comes from the fact that when you mention miracles at all, critics of the Bible will frequently use the Bible's accounts of miracles as a reason to disbelieve the validity of the Bible. You know, usually their logic goes something like, well, since we know that natural laws govern all activities within our world, that a miracle violates those natural laws. And therefore, we know that if the Bible recounts a story that involves miracles, that that story is some kind of a myth or a fairy tale. And so the critics of the Bible sort of believe in or treat biblical miracles as some kind of a myth or a fairy tale. So that's another subject of controversy, whether miracles ever occurred at all, and if so, what do they imply about the nature of creation? So there are a lot of different points about the Bible's accounts of miracles that either are under dispute, or alternatively, when they are discussed, that the explanation either creates false expectations among people or just outright confusion. So through our discussion of how the Bible actually treats miracles, we're hoping to bring some clarity to a subject that is often either misrepresented or misunderstood. Now, it's probably a good idea to note that this is kind of a big subject, so we're not going to get to all of those topics that we just mentioned today. Today, we sort of want to start out with a natural place, which is to start out talking about the miracles in the Old Testament. Now, we'll bring in some other kinds of topics just to make sure that we have context for our subject, but really today we want to spend most of our time talking about the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament and what that illustrates about biblical miracles in general. Ooh, sounds like we're in for some interesting discussions. But before we get started on talking about miracles, let's remember that the only reason miracles were, or are, even possible is because we serve an almighty and everlasting God who can accomplish anything He desires. I mean, a God that can create everything can surely intercede into His creation at any point He chooses for His own purposes. And that's really a great lead-in into our overall subject of the role that miracles play in the Bible. So let's start our discussion by observing that while the word miracle does appear in the Bible and it's sometimes used in the Bible, more often than not, what we think of miracles are usually described in the Bible as signs and wonders. And I think that we learn something important just by knowing that in the Bible, miracles are most often classified or most often described as signs and wonders. Which is... That miracles in the Bible are always used as a sign. The miracles in the Bible are used to signify or authenticate that a particular person is a messenger of God. In other words, biblical miracles, even though they may be wondrous events, they're not just sort of random chaotic things that occur from time to time, even if that event brings someone or a group of people a wonderful blessing. In the Bible, miracles are the signs and wonders that show that someone, a prophet, is an authentic messenger of Almighty God. Now, there are some episodes of miracles in the Bible that sometimes might give people a misleading impression if that episode is not kept in context. There are times and episodes in the Bible when miracles sort of seem to occur en masse, and that might give the impression that those miracles were not intentional or specific. You're thinking of episodes such as the one described in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. The New Living Translation description is, quote, And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. 
but no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed, unquote. Precisely. Listening to that description, you might kind of get the impression that Peter was just sort of a walking miracle generator, blasting out miraculous healings in all directions just by his mere presence. A walking miracle generator? Blasting out miracles? Really? Well, someone who read that description in Acts about Peter walking to the temple and his shadow falling on people and people being healed just by being under his shadow, someone who just kind of read that account but didn't put it in context might get the wrong impression. There was a brief period of time in redemptive history when the Apostle Peter was the focus of a number of miraculous events. But we have to remember the history and the context. This period occurred very shortly after Jesus' resurrection. So this particular period when Peter was the center of so many miracles was during the very earliest period of the church. When God wanted to be sure that people understood that Jesus' apostles, including Peter, were Jesus' rightful successors, God was authenticating the fact that Peter was now carrying God's genuine word, just as Jesus had done before him. And in Peter's case, this is pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, this wasn't that long after Peter's denial of Jesus, three times while Jesus was being tried before a Sanhedrin. Peter, or more properly, God was using Peter as God's messenger a mere matter of weeks after Peter had denied Jesus. This is a graphic demonstration that God can produce radical transformation in people in a very short period of time. Yes, Peter was one of the most important central figures of the early church. He was an important part of God's plan to build a body of believers that would carry the gospel the good news about Jesus, to the farthest corners of the world. So to be sure that the people understood that Peter's commission to carry that message, to carry the gospel, was coming directly from God for a certain, and again, relatively brief period, Peter was the center of a number of notable miracles. Now, in that way, Peter's case was a great illustration of a pattern that God had used at different points throughout the biblical period. You are saying that while miracles signs and wonders, are seen frequently in the Bible, they are actually concentrated in specific time periods. During those periods, which were chosen by God, God used miraculous events to demonstrate to the people, and us, that a particular person was God's chosen messenger. Yes. Now, without trying to be exhaustive, biblical miracles were actually concentrated at very specific points within redemptive history, And frankly, they were concentrated around very specific people. Probably the first person that we think of within redemptive history where there was just a cluster of miracles was Moses. And we specifically think about the time that Moses was bringing God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and back to the Promised Land. We think about especially, you know, the plagues that occurred during Egypt that eventually induced the Pharaoh 
to allow the people to leave, to move back to the promised land. And then kind of the next period that we think of when there was a cluster of miracles was during the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And of course, during that period, when Elijah and Elisha prophesied, was a period when idolatry had become a particularly pernicious evil during the period of the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom was after Solomon's death, and ten of the twelve tribes split off into the northern kingdom of Israel, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained in the south as the kingdom of Judah. Yes. During that period, as I mentioned, idolatry had become a particularly pervasive evil, especially in the northern kingdom of Israel. And God sent prophet after prophet to warn the northern kingdom that if they didn't change their ways, if they didn't cease their idolatrous worship, the covenant curses that had been promised in the book of Deuteronomy would eventually come upon them. So God authenticated two of the prophets that he sent to the northern nation of Israel, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, by a burst of miracles. Those miracles and that period are recorded in the latter portion of the book of 1 Kings and the early part of 2 Kings. Yes. And then, of course, in the overall unfolding of redemptive history, most famously probably are the miracles that Jesus performed during his lifetime. And, of course, after Jesus, as we had sort of mentioned earlier, there were miracles that were performed by the apostles during the apostolic era of the early church. And it's fair to say that each of those periods, when there was a proliferation of miracles, it was at a critical time during redemptive history. I mean, the time period during which God was moving his people out of Egypt back to the Promised Land was obviously a very important time for the unfolding of God's overall plan of redemption. Yes, but let's remember that that time period wasn't just important in terms of geography, it was also important in terms of typology. I think you're going to need to clarify that a bit. Well, let's go back even a little bit further, before Moses. Let's go back to the time of Abraham. God had obviously promised the patriarch Abraham that his descendants would live in the territory that today we call Israel. Now, during the time of Abraham's grandson Jacob, who was also later renamed Israel, during the time of Jacob, a famine within the land of Israel caused Jacob to move his family from their homeland of Israel down into Egypt. So in Egypt, God turned a family that was about 80 or so people into a nation of over 2 million people. So when it came time to move the nation back to the land of Israel, back to the promised land, if you will, God sent Moses, who was a mighty prophet, to lead the people. Now, to authenticate the fact that Moses was God's chosen messenger, God had Moses perform a number of signs and wonders. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, probably the signs and wonders that we're most familiar with are the ten plagues that afflicted Egypt. This particular period of the plagues afflicting Egypt, and then of that inducing the Pharaoh to release the Israelites, and then the Israelites moving over a span of 40 years back into Israel, Remember that that particular period wasn't just important in the nation's history, but that was a type of episode that would become important in Jesus' own history. Remember that in the book of Matthew, the Apostle Matthew would recall this period of the nation's history when it was reprised in Jesus' own life. So remember that shortly after Jesus was born, when Herod threatened Jesus' life, Joseph took Mary and Jesus down into Egypt for safety. And then after Herod died and was no longer a threat to Jesus, Joseph moved his family, including Jesus, 
back up to the promised land, back to the town of Nazareth. So, in recounting Jesus' journey with his parents down into Egypt and then back to the Promised Land, Matthew reminded the people that this episode in Jesus' life reminded them of the same episode in the life of the nation. So, the fact that Moses performed miracles that helped the nation of Israel leave Egypt and move back to the Promised Land was not only important in the history of the nation, but it was also important because it would become a sign that would help identify Jesus as the Messiah almost 1,500 years later. And of course, for an eternal God, that fact that a gap of close to 1,500 years transpired between the initial action and the final importance is really nothing. So, despite the fact that the periods of concentrated miracles in the Bible are sometimes separated by hundreds of years, doesn't mean that they aren't all part of a single, unfolding plan. And only God could design or execute a plan that would span hundreds or even thousands of years. Absolutely right. And after Moses, chronologically speaking, the next time a burst of miracles occurred was during the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Correct? Correct. And you think it's fair to think of Elijah and Elisha's ministries as sort of a single period within redemptive history, right? I mean, Elijah recruited and mentored Elisha so that the ministries overlapped. And just before Elijah was taken up to heaven in the whirlwind, Elijah asked Elisha what Elisha wanted him to do for him before he departed. Elisha responded that he wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit and to be his successor. And most commentators believe Elisha's request was fulfilled because the Bible records that Elijah performed eight miracles, but Elisha performed 16 miracles. Do I have that right? Yes. So aside from the fact that Elijah and Elisha ministered during a period of particularly egregious idolatry, why do you think that that was a second period of abundant miracles? Signs and wonders, as you said. That's a great question, and I don't really have an absolute answer, even though I've thought about it a lot. And frankly, I've never found an answer that I really think is dispositive in all the materials that I've studied through the years. But it has always struck me as very interesting that when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration as it's called, that the two figures from the Old Testament that appeared to Jesus who conversed with him on that mountain were Moses and Elijah. So, in effect, you had the three most significant figures, at least the three most significant figures up to that time, around whom the miracles, the signs and wonders were clustered, all together at one place and one time. And so it's almost as if God was drawing together at one single place in time in history the major representatives of all the facets of redemptive history. People might want to remember that sometimes the Hebrew scholars referred to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, as the Law and Prophets. That was a sort of shorthand description for saying the Scriptures or the Hebrews Bible or what we call the Old Testament. They were referred to as the Law and the Prophets. Well, within that classification, two figures represented the Law and the Prophets. Moses classically represented the Law because he had brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain down to the nation of Israel that were camped around the foot of the mountain. And Elijah represented the Prophets. So, Elijah, if you'll remember, his prophetic ministry sort of predated all of the other Prophets whose books we have in the Bible. 
Elijah preached before Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi or Micah or Hosea. Elijah, in some ways, now he wasn't the very first prophet in the Bible. That honor probably belonged to Noah. Elijah wasn't the very first prophet in the Bible, but he was certainly, chronologically speaking, the head of the group of prophets that would eventually bring so many messages to people, either in Israel or Judah or their surrounding neighbors. Elijah was certainly the head of that particular group of people. So again, one way in which the ancient Hebrew scholars referred to their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, was to call them the Law and the Prophets. So Moses represented the Law, and Elijah represented the Prophets. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not too much of a stretch to say that God was linking the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, God was linking the Old Testament to the New And God, on that mountain, used the central figures of his plan of signs and wonders to show a continuous and continuing unfolding history of God's plan of redemption. That's really an amazing thought when you think about it. We often talk about the remarkable unity of Scripture. The Bible is a book written by dozens of human authors over a period of 1,500 years. But there, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have an absolutely graphic example of that unity. The most important figures of the Bible's miraculous nature all together as Jesus prepared for the momentous event in all of human history, his death and resurrection. Amazing. Exactly. Now, on our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion of miracles, our discussion of signs and wonders. And in that episode, we're going to spend some more time on the miracles of the New Testament. But for today, just to sort of wrap up this discussion of the history of miracles that began in the Old Testament, I want to make one final observation about the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament. Now, based on the time periods that used to be conventionally accepted, Moses led the people out of Egypt around the middle of the 15th century B.C., So think about that. Moses led the people out of Egypt, the Hebrews out of Egypt, and back to the Promised Land around the middle of the 15th century B.C. Now, the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, was written around the middle of the 5th century B.C. So there's roughly a gap of about a thousand years between the time that Moses first composed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, There was a gap of about a thousand years between Moses composed the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and Malachi closed the canon of the Old Testament around the middle of the 5th century B.C. Now, it's interesting that Elijah and Elisha performed their ministries roughly around the middle of the 10th century B.C., somewhere in the vicinity of about 950 to 900 B.C. So it's fair to say that Elijah and Elisha performed their work pretty close to the midpoint of the time period between Israel leaving Egypt and the close of the writing of the Old Testament with Malachi. So Elijah and Elisha's ministries appear to represent something of a line of demarcation in redemptive history. They prophesied right after the nation of Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And never again after that split would there be a unified nation consisting of the 12 original tribes. The northern kingdom consisting of 10 tribes actually disappeared from the pages of history around 722 B.C. when it was conquered and dispersed by the Assyrians. That's why sometimes you hear people refer to the 10 lost tribes of Israel. 
So in some ways, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, the miracles that they performed, seem to have marked sort of a major turning point in the life of the nation of Israel, which of course, since the nation of Israel is the nation that gave birth to the Messiah, gave birth to Jesus, turning points in the life of the nation of Israel are pretty important turning points in the overall history of redemption. Just as Moses' arrival on the scene to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt and back to the Promised Land was another major turning point. So it's almost as if God used miracles in the Bible not just to authenticate his messengers, also to mark out the significant turning points during his overall plan of redemption as it unfolded throughout history. Again, that's an amazing thought. We sometimes think that God has hidden the truth of what he is doing in history, but when you know what to look for, it actually becomes like a series of lighted signposts. Like you said, signs and wonders. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for the nation, because our nation, like all nations, can only prosper when we turn to Jesus for healing and restoration. A prayer for the nation. Almighty and sovereign Father, you are the one true and perfect ruler of all that is and all that ever will be. The stars move at your command and the cosmos stretches out by the works of your hands. If the heavens themselves and all they contain are ruled by you, then how much more are the nations of men subject to your eternal reign? Lord, we come to you today to pray for our nation, the United States of America. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we pledge that this is one nation under God. May it truly be so. May our people recognize that we owe our existence to you and that you are the rightful master of this nation and indeed all creation. Nations rise and fall at your command for you ordain and govern all the affairs of this world. We pray, Lord, that this nation might find favor in your sight as we turn and look to you. We know that there is much about our nation and people today that does not please you and does not conform to your will. Forgive us for this, mighty Lord. In too many ways, we have wandered from the truths upon which we were founded. We repent of our wanderings and especially the part we have played in them. We have too often lost sight that we will all be held accountable to you, and this has led to foolish pride and unwise presumption. Bring us to a renewed sense of your holiness and justice, and help us to rebuke our failings. Help us to humble ourselves so that we may begin again to walk straight paths as we depend on you. Lord, there are many other nations and groups in this world that would seek our harm and even our devastation. Even now, many conspire against us. We pray that you would not allow them to succeed. Do not let our stumbles become an occasion for their joy. We pray that you would confound them in their efforts to cause us harm and injury. We do not ask this on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your mercy. Do not let them become proud by granting them a victory as we struggle for restoration. 
Lord, give wisdom and instruction to our leaders at all levels, both civilian and military. Turn their hearts to you and bring them into direct contact with your transforming character. Remind them that they are your stewards and that all their authority comes only from you. Let the name of your Son be lifted up in our hearts as we rejoice in the restoration and salvation he brought. We glory and hope in his name, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're We're not famous, but our boss is. Do your friends believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you? How can you be sure one way or another? Anchored by Truth is here to help. One of the 20th century's most prominent archaeologists, Sir William Ramsey, started out as a doubter about the historical reliability of the Book of Acts. But after doing decades of his own on-site investigations, Ramsey completely changed his mind and wrote that, Luke's history was unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. To hear more evidence that you can use to be sure for yourself that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, tune in to Anchored by Truth on Wave FM every Tuesday morning at 11.30 or listen to previous episodes on your favorite podcast app. Faith in the Bible isn't about a leap in the dark. It's about walking in the light of reason and evidence, and Anchored by Truth is here to help you discover that light.